For our Old Testament reading this morning, it will come from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now let us turn to the New Testament, to the book of 2 Corinthians. Our New Testament reading is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen, unseen are eternal. Thus says the word of God. What would people say at your funeral? What sort of legacy would you be remembered for? About eight years ago, my wife's grandparents decided they wanted to know exactly what people would say at their funeral. So they hosted a living wake of sorts. And sure enough, they're still alive to this day, at 98 and 92 years old, I believe. We all hope that at the end of our lives, others might say that we lived life well. What would you say of your life, though? What sort of verdict would you give over what your life meant? Was it worthwhile? Was it spent well? Was it used unto the glory of God? Would you, or would your words be something like that of Sigmund Freud as he slipped away with the fatal dose of morphine? He said, apparently, now it is nothing but torture and makes no sense anymore. What a tragic end to a tragic life. Or perhaps would they be more akin to one of our heroes of the faith suffering in the final throes of pneumonia? I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. In our passage this morning, we'll have something of the final testament of the wise King Solomon. Although we're only in the first chapter of this book, we see here something of a summary of his life and his quest to find something lasting, something firm, something permanent, some sort of meaning to his life. Here in chapters 1 and 2, he gives us an autobiography of sorts. And one of the beauties of Scripture is that unlike the ancient Near East and those kings, this autobiography shows King Solomon warts and all. Where the pharaohs would hype up their accomplishments and sanctify their wrongdoings, this autobiography is quite different. Where the pharaohs and and the ancient uh, emperors would consider their reigns as magnificent successes, Solomon comes to the end of his life and says that it's all vanity and a striving after wind. 
Indeed, he even says crazy things such as the more wisdom, the more vexation. He says that he hated his life. And all we see here, an autobiography of a life that is poorly spent. In our time this morning, we are going to look at Solomon's verdict over his life, that it it was a vain life. And then we're going to see three reasons why he says that, three regrets that he has over the life that he spent. And then by God's grace, he will lead us in a moment of hope and expectation at the very end. But let us begin in chapter 1, verse 12. We're first going to see Solomon's sober verdict, a vain life. His sober verdict a vain life. Solomon writes, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, high and lofty, seated upon the throne of David, recipient of the Davidic covenant, gifted with incredible wisdom by God himself. This is one whom he calls himself the preacher and one whom we should listen to, for he is indeed the king over Jerusalem. He writes, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. He says that he applied his heart to all that he is, his whole being. He he devoted to the task of searching something out. He decided to diligently search with a careful and exhaustive searching. And after all, he is well equipped to use wisdom, is he not? This is, after all, the the young king who, or the, the king who in his younger years was given incredible wisdom by God himself. And he applies his heart to search by wisdom, seeking out all that is done under heaven. If ever there was a man who could do this with any sort of certainty, it was Solomon, is it not? If ever a mere mortal could examine the goings on, of creatures, this is the one who could do it. If ever a philosopher might uncover the true meaning of life, it's Solomon. And yet, what are his findings? He tells us here. He tells us that it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. This term, unhappy business, uh, is translated alternatively in various translations as a grievous task. It's a bad business. It's, it's evil even. It's burdensome or miserable. One translation even calls it a tragic existence. It is a sad task that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I find his, his use of terminology very interesting here, that, that it was given by God to the children of man to busy them. First off, we must note that the, he says that this is given by God. Note the sovereignty of God on display here. This is against the worldly philosophy, is it not, that we are the commanders of our own destiny, that we are the captains of our own fate? We are responsible, but we are not the masters of our lives. Indeed, God has ordained the task that we should be busy with. God has set before man what he should do, what he must do, what he ought to do. And Solomon says that life under the sun, God has given us a sad and miserable task to do. It's also interesting, is it not, that he he says for the children of man to be busy with. I remember a while ago, my daughters, when there was a time when I just needed a little bit of a few moments to collect myself, uh, to my shame perhaps, I, I would give them a task to be busy with. And there were a few times where I actually felt bad about it because they went at the task with such delight and vigor 
knowing that it would probably take them 15 minutes to accomplish this task when it would take me 30 to 60 seconds, but they were so enthusiastic about it. It's almost this sort of illustration that Solomon is using, that that God has given us a task to keep us busy. It's almost as if Solomon says that God has other things to do and he has set us aside to do something just to keep us out of the way. And it is a very sad, unhappy task to be busied with. Now, of course, we know that God uses all things for his glory and that there is not one rogue molecule that he does not use for his own purposes. And therefore, the task that he has given to us will accomplish his glory and even will work out for our good. And yet the life under the sun is filled with sorrow and misery and unhappiness and, and trouble. God has given us an unhappy business to be busy with. He keeps us occupied and distracted. He, he, he could come and fix it all in an instant, yet he keeps us occupied until he is ready to fix it himself. Solomon says in verse 14, I, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Last time we spoke a bit about the term vanity, and, and just as a, a, by way of reminder, it's a neutral term. It merely means something that is fleeting, something that is vaporous, something that is here now and gone the next moment. I'm sure as you walked out to your cars this morning on this brisk, chill winter morning or fall morning, you saw your breath coming out of your mouth, did you not? You saw the vapor coming out of your lungs, and it was there for a moment and gone the next, and that is exactly what this term vanity is referring to. It is precisely something that is here now and gone the next moment. Another interpreter has called it like bubbles. They're here, they're very real, they're very beautiful, and then they pop and then they are gone forever. But here we have another uh, tagline, as it were, or another major theme of the book of Ecclesiastes, and that is the, the idea of striving after wind. Now, if you went to Carson City during the summer months and you went hiking up in the hills on the west side of town, you would invariably, if you spent enough time, come across or, or in the moment of stillness, hear a bell ringing. Actually, many bells ringing. And, and if you investigated further and went towards the bells ringing, you would notice a massive herd of sheep, a flock of sheep grazing the mountainsides. They do that in Carson City to keep the fuels down for fire season. But you would come across the sheep first, and you would wonder the question, where is the shepherd? And as you move your way through these sheep, should you decide to do so, you would find the shepherd at the very back of the sheep. The shepherd in Western culture drives the sheep from the rear, but in the ancient Near Eastern culture, the shepherds would lead the sheep. The shepherds would know their sheep so intimately and and the sheep would know their shepherd so well that when they heard the voice of the shepherd leading them out, they knew that that shepherd was leading them to green pastures or still waters. And they would follow the shepherd. The shepherd would lead the sheep from the front rather than drive them from the back. Now this is important because the Hebrew term here actually is referring to shepherding the wind. And I bring this up to show you the absurdity of what Solomon is talking about. If a shepherd leads the sheep from the front, he's saying that to to find meaning in anything done under the sun is is, is almost as if you were to shepherd the wind itself. Can you imagine the absurdity of someone standing in front of the wind and saying, come on, wind, this way. 
and expecting the wind to follow him. Of course, this would never happen. The wind blows where it wills, and no one knows from where it comes or where it is going. So too is the Spirit of God, according to the words of Christ. But Solomon says here, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it's like a vapor that's here now and gone in a moment, and it's almost like you're trying to drive the wind by leading it from the front. He continues, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. There's a simple proverb here, what God has done cannot be undone. Man's fall cannot be undone by man. What man broke, he cannot fix. Now, you children in here, an easy way of remembering this was actually something that my wife taught in the Sunday school. So maybe you dads should listen up. This might give you a clue of what happened a couple weeks ago in the Sunday school. She brought one of those beautiful pieces of cake. Can you kids remember those pieces of cake that we had a couple weeks ago? Do you remember those? And then she brought this piece of cake in and said, do you want this piece of cake? And of course, all you kids would say, yes, absolutely. And then she took out, she did something really, really tricky. She took out a big thing of yellow mustard and poured it over the cake. Do you want that cake anymore, kids? No, that's gross. Yucky, icky, sour mustard on the beautiful, sweet, creamy, delightful piece of cake. And in the same manner, it's almost like we try to unmustard the cake, as it were, in, in trying to fix our sins. And we cannot do it. That cake is ruined. We as humans, we are ruined by our sins and we cannot fix it. We are cursed to die. We will die and we cannot not die. We will one day perish from the face of this earth. Man's folly cannot make us wise. What man lacks, he cannot fill. What God has done stands from the fall to the curse, and it is God alone who can fix our problem of sin. What God has made vain, we cannot be made permanent, make permanent. We cannot undo what God has done. Solomon says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Is this a humble brag that Solomon is doing here? Is he saying, I was truly great in Jerusalem, and in fact, I was better than everyone else? Well, no, it's not because of what he says in the next verse, in verse 17. He says, I was the greatest in Jerusalem, surpassing all who were before me. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. If you were bragging, this would then become a statement of what great, that great wisdom accomplished for him and how he did something great with it. Yet in his pursuit of wisdom and madness and folly, he discovered that it was like shepherding the wind and a vexation. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You remember a time growing up, do you not, when you were living in blissful ignorance? Perhaps as a child, you, your, your biggest troubles were whether your food was touching. And now look at your life. What are the things that trouble you now? With maturity, with wisdom, be, brings with it much vexation. How many of you would like to return at times to when you were a child and life was so much more simple? When you were a child, you were probably happier. You certainly had less cares, less pressure on your life. 
One of my favorite lines from the Christmas carol is, uh, for it is good to be a child sometimes, and never better than at Christmas, when its mighty founder was a child himself. As we grow older, we grow wiser. And as we grow wiser, we grow more cynical and sad and sorrowful. Solomon claims that his life is vain and passing, and he now turns to prove it. As we will see in chapter 2, we're going to see some of Solomon's regrets in his life. Solomon takes his experiences in life, and he uses wisdom, and he applies it with a sober mind to tell us what it all meant. If ever there was a man who could leave a lasting legacy, surely it would have been this lesser son of David. Yet such is not the case. We see his first regret in verses 1 through 11, that wanton pleasure distracts from vanity. Pleasure merely distracts from vanity. Pleasure distracts from vanity. It does not solve it. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Live wantonly. Delight in whatever lusts of the eyes come across your way. Partake in whatever debauchery. Revel in any hedonistic pleasure that may cross your path, is what Solomon said to his heart. I said of laughter, verse 2, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? This term laughter is probably better translated as partying or for a very modern take as clubbing. It's feasting in excess. There is a sort of mayhem, a giving over to frivolity. This is not joy. Let us be incredibly clear on that. To be joyous is to have a deep and settled peace and happiness about you that that doesn't matter of the circumstances in which you are found. But this laughter, this partying, this, this uh, debauchery is something that delights in and is happy in, in, in excess. And ultimately, he says that it is self-defeating and foolish. And moreover, it's even self-destructive. Laughter and pleasure do not do anything worthy or lasting. They last but a mere moment and are lost to memory, leaving the reveler to seek that high again and again. He continues on, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He wrestles with living out days at a time drunk as a skunk. Will that change the dull ache of longing for permanence? Can he just check out through alcohol? Only a short life to live, so live it up with booze, he tries. Drink, drink, drink to life. Drink to forget your cares. And yet, as we'll see, it did not work. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. He reasons perhaps grand buildings and monuments and houses would sate his hunger for legacy. We have monuments to great men in history, do we not? And so many of those are being torn down as we speak. We have grand facades, magnificent halls and palaces, exquisite architecture and and delightful statues. Perhaps he could find meaning in those. Would this be enough to solidify his life? He continues, I made gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. 
I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Perhaps, and uniquely, this is the most like legacy building that he could have done. There is, after all, an old proverb that says the best time to plant a tree is 30 years ago, and the second best time to plant a tree is today. Indeed, when we lived in Los Angeles, we, we lived in a house that was a part of an old orange orchard, or built on an old orange orchard, and we had one of those original trees still in our backyard that still bore fruit for us every single winter. We didn't know the planter, though. We didn't know who owned the land way back when, but we still had that tree. Would this solve the problem of death for Solomon? Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. He embarks upon a mission of hyper-accumulation. He who has the most toys wins, he attempts to prove. Be it creatures or humans, gold or silver, Solomon had it all. And yet he forgot that central truth, that there are no U-Hauls at the cemetery. You cannot take it with you. Okay, he didn't have U-Hauls at that moment in time. But he could not take these wealth and these possessions with him to the grave. He says, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. Let us not forget that this is a man who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. If he were alive today, people would rightfully diagnose him with nymphomania. There was no reason why he should have that number of women. People say, well, the alliances, and surely he did forge many, many alliances as king over Israel and brought much peace and prosperity to the nation. And yet, with that number of women, how many children did he have that he could have used for the alliance formation? No, this was a man who was given over to sensual uh, deviancy and scandal. This was a man who was a philanderer. This was a man who was a womanizer. And he did it as king over Israel. We speak of sexual perversion in our time, but here we see Solomon as a prime exemplar of a scandalous leader, do we not? So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, Solomon says. And he notes, also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Never before and never since has one man possessed such unimaginable riches and wealth and power and wisdom all at the same time. Sure, some may have been kings over larger lands. Others have been wealthier. Others have been perhaps wiser. But none have possessed all of these qualities at the same time. Solomon was the zenith of humanity. He was indeed all that humanity could be under the sun. Dare I say, this lesser son of David is perhaps the closest to the true son of David in these respects, in his wealth, in his power, in his wisdom, than any other man on earth having these characteristics. But what is his verdict on this? What, what, what is his summing thoughts on this pleasure that he had gathered for himself? Look at verse 11. 
Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Herein lies the distinction. Although Solomon was like unto end a type of Christ in power and splendor and majesty, yet the lesser king found no joy, no lasting delight in how he wielded his office and abilities. Such a stark contrast, is it not? Solomon had great wealth and possessions, where Christ left great wealth and possessions. Solomon indulging in every pleasure and imbibing every temptation, while Christ endured every suffering and temptation. Solomon planted gardens, building a stone temple. Christ was betrayed in a garden and built a far better temple. Solomon was empty and vain and so sorrowful, yet Christ was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, yet was joyful and full. Solomon gained nothing under the sun, but Christ gains everything under the sun. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says this, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, that is Christ, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, and that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, bare pleasure and wealth cannot satisfy the longing for permanence and belonging. It cannot quench the fear of death, but Christ can and does. But what of wisdom, you might ask? Surely wisdom might ease the pain of life under the sun? Well, this brings us to Solomon's second regret, that wisdom merely prolongs vanity. Wisdom merely prolongs vanity. So I turn to consider, verse 12, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Have you ever considered the plight of Solomon? He came after arguably the greatest king Israel had ever known. Solomon lived in the shadow of his father for his entire life. Where David drove out the Philistines, Solomon only ensured that they stayed out. Where David founded the fame and wealth of the nation, Solomon only elaborated and built upon that foundation. Even the temple, the most grand structure that Solomon could have built, was David's idea in the first place. You see, Solomon did not do anything that was truly unique, truly novel, truly new under the sun. He only took what was given to him, what was, betra- what was handed down to him, and built upon it and elaborated upon it. I would submit for your consideration, there was nothing that Solomon did that his father did not do first, at least in some small measure. Solomon says in verse 13, Then I saw that there is no more gain in wisdom than in folly. Uh, that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and as there is more gain in light than darkness... Make no mistake, it is far better to be wise than a fool. There is much gain to being wise. The wise live better lives in general. Often they are healthier. Often they are more prosperous because they live wisely. Generally, the wise have children that they enjoy and who enjoy them. Generally, the wise are looked up to and honored in society. Generally, the wise live longer. Generally, the wise live happier. There is much gain in being wise over being a fool. 
Not so the fool. The wise person has his eyes in his head, verse 14, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. Note the great leveler of humanity, death. Though the wise may extend their lives, they cannot keep them. Mark this well, the wisest man will die just as surely as the greatest fool. You cannot outsmart death. You may only prolong it in, your human, in our human perspective. Indeed, God has appointed a day for the fool to die, just as surely as he has appointed a day for the wisest man to die as well. Solomon laments, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. He's lamenting his wisdom. He has been too wise, he says. Verse 16, For for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Solomon says he will be forgotten. No matter how wise he is, you too will be forgotten. I will be forgotten. My children may remember me. My grandchildren might remember me, but my great-grandchildren probably won't. They may know my name, but that's about it. So too for you. So too for all those who live under the sun. Solomon's response is somewhat startling, is it not, in verse 17? Look at what he says in verse 17. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. You see, this is the inevitable result of the vexation of wisdom for wisdom's sake. The more worldly wise you are, the more you realize that this world is wasting away and there's nothing you can do to save it. The more wisdom, the more vexation, and that vexation results in hatred of life. This is life under the sun, is it not? The more you see, the more it hurts, and the more the temptation to hate. This is why we live in a culture of death that has seen the vanity of life, that has seen its own fragility, its own transience, and as a result, it has allowed a culture of death to seep in and permeate all that we are. We Christians must keep in mind what Christ has done for us to to hem us in against this temptation that we all are, are so prone to. Wisdom will be forgotten. Because wisdom cannot end death. Wisdom cannot save. So after saying that, that pleasure does not stop vanity and that, that wisdom only prolongs the vanity, we now come to Solomon's third regret that work produces vanity. That work itself produces vanity. He says in verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master for all of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Tragically, whether this wise king knew it or not, the one to whom he would give his kingdom would actually squander it through folly. He asked the question, who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Indeed, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is a fool or was a fool. 
You remember in 1 Kings chapter 12, when Rehoboam takes the throne after his father's death, and and the, the old wise men counsel him to be kind, to be gentle, to be a, a magnanimous ruler. And in response, Rehoboam the fool rejects wise counsel for young folly. And he proclaims in, in one of his first decrees from the throne, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And of course, this foolish decree, this, this wretched, miserable fool of a king left wide open the the revolt that Jeroboam would soon lead to split the kingdom, divide the power, and squander all the wealth that Solomon had built. All that David and Solomon worked for, toiled after, was wasted within that one next generation. Solomon says, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. I don't know whether Solomon was looking at his son and realizing what a fool this young man was. Part of me says he was, but even if not, this is a common occurrence, is it not? We even have the term the three-generation cycle to refer to this. The first generation fights to establish something. The second generation inherits, inherits that grand gift of grace from their fathers and mothers. And then they, they may continue to build on it or they may just leave it to coast along. And then the grandchildren come along and waste the entire thing because they had no investment in it. They had no fight in it. They had nothing that was keeping them true to what was fought. We see this time and time again in seminaries and denominations and churches even. Where once was a faithful church, now is a bastion of evil and false teaching. Solomon says in verse 22, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work itself is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Can you feel his sorrow and his burden in looking at his work? Do you feel some of his sorrow in your own work? We have the monotony of office life. We have the repetitiveness of our jobs. Indeed, now we have true 24-hour work days with a smartphone that constantly has emails that are dinging at us for our attention. Our employers are gracious and give us vacation time, and yet the burden of our workload is so great that we don't take that vacation time. We are depressed. We feel sorrow over life under the sun because our work overwhelms us at times. Solomon was no stranger to this. All that he had worked for would soon be lost. All that he had labored over would be squandered. All that he accumulated would be spent. There was nothing lasting. All that he built would be laid waste. All that he stood for would be betrayed. All that he toiled over would end in nothing. Vanity of vanities, all is indeed vanity. 
Having shown us this vain life and by way of application revealing to us our own vain lives, the preacher ends our passage this morning with a note of hope. A note of hope. And is this not the way of all of Scripture? We are humbled and we are cut down by the law of God. We are given the harsh, cold reality of death and the curse and the fact that we justly deserve all that we receive only to be lifted up with the hope of the gospel, to be enlivened with the promises of God, to be lifted up by the grace that God has given. Finally, we see Solomon's great hope and his admonition, enjoy the grace of God. We see this in the last two verses of our passage this morning. Enjoy the grace of God. He writes, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Wait, he just said his toil was vexing to him. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Do you see the perspective change here? When you are laboring for your own glory, when you are laboring for your even family's glory, you will find your work to be utter vexation. You will find it to be meaningless. You will find it to be empty. But if you understand that your labor, your work, your toil is from the hand of God himself, all of a sudden your perspective changes, does it not? This also I saw was from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? As we trek through this book, it will become apparent that after every single section where Solomon either demonstrates or laments the vanity of life, he concludes with a section about how we should respond and delight in the grace that God has given. And this is one of the reasons why I love the comment that this is the Philippians of the Old Testament, because there is always joy after the sorrow. There is always hope at the end of each section of this book. And it is only through the darkness that we can see the light shining brightest. It's only after the clouds of pride and arrogance are dispersed from our lives that we can see the joy of the Lord. It's only after we clearly see our sin that we can delight in the salvation of our God. He writes in verse 24, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Eat, drink, and be merry in the Lord. We could paraphrase it as. Hopefully you did this on Thursday. Hopefully this is an easy application because you've already done it. We rejoice and celebrate the good things that God has given. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat and who can drink and who can have enjoyment? There is only sorrow apart from the Lord. There is no lasting peace or enjoyment in life under the sun. It's not, is this not the logical and practical outgrowth of the gospel of grace? We see in the gospel that, that Christ came in the fullness of time to redeem us from our sin. That he lived under the law that we could not keep. That he actively obeyed the word of God in a way that we could never do. That he lived a perfect life and died a perfect death upon the cross so that we might be saved. He reconciled us to God. He brought us from enemies to friends. And not only friends, but as bringing adoption as sons and daughters in the father's household. What is more, the Spirit of God regenerates our hearts so that we are not only adopted sons and daughters, but we are also natural-born sons and daughters in the household of God. We completely belong. We do not need to fear being cast out. We have been reconciled. He is ours and we are his. 
Do you not think that food tastes sweeter knowing from whom it came from? Our drink is more satisfying. Our work is given purpose knowing that we are right with God. Therefore, the things that God gives us are for our good and for his glory. Therefore, we can enjoy food in a way that the unbeliever cannot. We can enjoy drink in a way that the unbeliever is unable to. And we can work with a purpose that the unbeliever is foreign to. Because we know that death is defeated. And that we may not leave a lasting legacy here on earth, but we do, by God's grace, leave a lasting legacy in heaven because he has so decreed it to be. The gospel changes everything under the sun. Solomon says, For for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Note well this blessed truth that God has given us wisdom. We have the mind of Christ. What greater wisdom could there be? A wisdom of one who surpasses that of Solomon himself. What's more, we have been given knowledge. We have been shown mysteries that angels long to look into. We know God in a way that the smartest astrophysicists and scientists cannot even fathom. And he has also given us joy. We rejoice with great joy alongside our federal head, the true and better Solomon who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the majesty on high. Yet with this grand promise, there is a note of warning. Solomon says, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. We do have the hope of the gospel here. But we also have a warning to those who hear the gospel and do not believe it. There may be some of you in this room who have not trusted in Christ as the Lord and Savior. Today is the day to repent if that is you. Because the gospel changes all things. And what is more, it gives us hope for the future. It gives us hope for future grace and joy. We have hope that one day this world will end and all the tragedies, all the difficulties, all the the horrors that we see will be made right. Just in closing, this morning we had an interesting morning in the uh, Lambin household. We had a a rabbit who gave birth to five beautiful, funny-colored little baby kits on Wednesday. And this morning, with the cold, we discovered that the heating mat that they were on shorted out overnight. And they had frozen in the 14-degree weather overnight. And we tried to revive them. We tried our best. There is an old saying that you don't have a dead rabbit until you have a warm dead rabbit. We tried. We tried to revive them. tried to resuscitate them. And yet, still, we stared at five beautiful little baby rabbits that had died. One day, death will be, will be completely brought to an end. All the terrors that we see, all the sorrows that we have, will be brought to a close. And we will consider with Paul that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that this is the day that we remember and celebrate that Christ rose from the dead, that he defeated death. 
Lord, we long for the day when our uh, death and the death upon this earth is done away with in its entirety. When you make all things right, when you reconcile all things to our Lord and Savior Christ. Lord, we long for heaven where there is no death, where there is no sorrow, where all of our toil, all of our labors are obviously and delightfully meaningful. We long for that land of joy where we might celebrate and delight in what Christ has done for us and what you are doing uh, even now in, in remembering what you are doing through your people on this earth for the praise and the glory of our Lord and Savior. Lord, we long for heaven where, where the pleasures and delights that we have are not vain, but bring you glory, and we delight in them. Lord, we long for the day when we are wise and, and obviously wise. Lord, we thank you for the hope of heaven. And Lord, we do pray that as we go about our lives under the sun, that we would remember what you have done, that we would keep Christ at the forefront of our minds, and that we would always remember him. And so delight in and have all the more joy in anticipation. We love you, Lord, and it's in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.